welcome back to the Watch Arts podcast. Uh, I am Hamza, and I am here as usual uh, with Charles. Charles, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. We're going to be talking today about another market update. The last time we talked about the market in the podcast was sometime back in late April, early May. And so it's been almost a quarter uh, that has passed. And then in addition to that, we obviously put out the Morgan Stanley report talking about the state of the pre-owned market. Uh, we've done some additional product development work since that last update. So now seemed like a good time to revisit that topic uh, for the entirety of an episode. So we'll cover some of the interesting observations that we have to talk about. But uh, before we do that, let's do risk checks. What do you have on, Charles? So I'm wearing my Ming 1709 with the blue dial. Um, this was a watch that was released in like a 10 minute uh, window, I think, last year. And you had a pick of a burgundy dial or a blue. I went th with the blue. Ming, obviously, last year, like received a lot of attention. And it actually sort of come on my radar like the year before. I didn't really get the chance to jump on any releases um, before then. So then when I did last year, when they announced the 1709, I thought, okay, you know, this is a good chance to pull the trigger and sort of see what the hype is all about. It's, you know, a very interesting watch. There's no seconds hand. It's incredibly minimalist. Even the logo, even the name of the brand is presented very subtly as it's disguised as like a marker at the three o'clock position. And I think in the latest one they announced, I don't believe the logo, the name of the brand even shows up on the dial at all. Um, the 3707. Right, which is which is really interesting. It is it is on the dial, so it's uh, inset into the ring at the bottom at the six o'clock marker, where it's basically in line with the rest of the ring. Uh, I see. Kind of uh, draws the outer edge of the of the dial. Ah, uh, yeah, I missed that completely. Yeah, it's very subtle. Um, because I was I think I was looking for it in the, in the typical I was spot. Looking for it at at the three o'clock spot. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do you think about this one? I'm not sure. I like the mosaic pattern of the one they did last year better, but obviously that one's also a lot more expensive. I'm also not sure how I feel about the case shape because it does seem a bit angular and that's not really something that I'm a fan of. I think I enjoy, yeah, like the flanks are very, the flanks are just sort of straight down. And I mm -hmm. think I, I, I uh, enjoy more of a uh, curved case shape. So I probably will not be I think actually they, these were released like earlier today or something. I think they're doing a couple of batches. Um, we're recording this on the 29th of July. But yeah, I will not be picking up, picking up one of these. Also, I need to stop buying two or three-hander watches and finally get on you know some complications that I've been wanting to get. Um, so I think it's interesting, though, and it's it's priced relatively reasonably, I feel. So we'll see how it goes. I have on a Seiko SSK001, one of the new GMTs. So it came out in three colorways, black and gray, which is the one I have, and then with a black dial, and then a blue sunburst dial with blue and black, which is a copy of, well, it's, it's, a, it's a facsimile of the Batgirl. And then there's one that has an orange dial, which also has a bicolor uh, bezel. The amazing thing about this watch is, and I've tried wearing it both on a bracelet and on an Erica's Originals um, elastic fabric type strap, is 
for its height and for its size, it's it's 40 millimeters. It wears incredibly well. It looks really nice. Legibility is okay, but there's all of these little things that seem like they're updates or upgrades over the earlier iterations of watches that have informed the design here. So the case has multiple polishes. The uh, loomed plots on the dial are surrounded by metal. And so they're not just printed directly onto the dial. The bezel rotates in both directions. The bezel insert sits below a hardlex crystal insert. So there's quite a bit of depth and even a bit of a, a mirror uh, effect to it. And you know, obviously you get the GMT functionality in a watch that costs $475. It's stunning. I write reviews for some of the watches that I own occasionally on fifthwrist.com. Shout out to Fifth Wrist Radio. And the review that I wrote, I, th I think there, there's it's, it's still in the pipeline to, to get published, but I wrote about how everybody seems to have a beater Seiko story. Everybody has one Seiko that they used to own, that they used to like beating up and that helped them fall in love with mechanical watches. And I just never really got why that was the case. And I tried to recreate that experience with two or three different Seikos that I bought. And this is the one that finally, I think, scratches that itch where it's like, okay, I get why people buy these watches. And the short answer is it's just because like they're incredibly fun to wear and right. you don't really need anything else in a watch. So it runs a minute slow, but who cares? Yeah. And how thick is it? It is thinner than, I believe, my Norcane GMT, which is about the same thickness as a Tudor Black Bay GMT. So mm -hmm. it's not, for, for what it is, it, it could be bigger. Uh, it's it's not, which is a great thing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we move on. Yes. Question? Yes. So this week, uh, it's uh, not really a question as much as it is a comment, uh, again, from Instagram. So... This came from uh, an Instagram account called Words and Watches. So I'll just read out the comment for you, Charles. Um, and, and, you know, this person says, you'd think this one would hold its value better. They're referring to a post that we did on the market price for the Grand Seiko SBGA 211 Snowflake. You'd think this one would hold its value better. The way pre-owned prices work is mind-boggling. It's literally all about Rolex how boring, end quote. And this one stuck out to us when we were doing uh, prep for this episode just because of uh, how controversial a topic it feels. And so the decision we made during prep was that we would time this conversation and try and time box it to five minutes. So right. Charles, I'll give you a couple minutes to, to share your thoughts or your reaction to that. Uh, I'll follow that up with my own. We'll do a quick wrap up and then try and move on. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to be that deliberate about it because I know if we got into this, we could spend the rest of the episode just right. talking about this question. For sure. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is I definitely understand the sentiment from an enthusiast perspective, but at the same time, like I'm not surprised the way the market is what it is. Right. So I think that it's just that there's this disconnect between the quality of a product and sort of the, the equity of a brand. Right. And so this collector and, you know, other collectors, including myself, are looking at products more from an 
intrinsic perspective, you know, what is the watch offering in terms of value for money, in terms of craftsmanship, in terms of quality. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate. And in a lot of times it doesn't just it doesn't translate at all to a strong value retention, right? When it comes to value retention, it's much more of sort of this question of, you know, like the, the luxury perception, the, the brand equity, the perception of the brand among watch owners, not necessarily collectors or enthusiasts as a whole. And I think that Grand Seiko in terms of their quality is very good. And, you know, it's probably still remains good value for money in terms of yeah, the quality of the craftsmanship that you're getting. But they're sort of missing, <laughs> they're, they're missing some of the other things. Um, personally, I think that their catalog is a bit too unfocused and they sort of lack, you know, iconic models and the brand heritage, um, as well as sort of the Swiss, you know, location, I guess uh, there is still some uh, stigma against Japanese made watches, but these are things that are holding Grand Seiko back in terms of having, you know, higher value retention. So yeah, as I said, I'm, I, I, I empathize, but I'm not surprised at the way the market is what it is. Yeah, I would, um, I, I think the way that I chose to think about this question is, um, I, I think it's similar to, to what you described, but it, it's the fact that Rolex is one of the few brands that happens to consistently trade above retail. And so in that sense is a bit of an outlier when it comes to understanding how value is retained in luxury watches in a broader sense across other brands. The interesting thought experiment was whether you would say the same thing if you were comparing, you know, Grand Seiko to, let's say, Omega, where value retention might be more comparable. It's just that Rolex happens to be in this unique place that, uh, you know, its its value is retained just so much more than uh, other brands and, in fact, results in many, if not most of their watches, certainly at this point in time, trading for above retail. That is nothing to say about how good Grand Seiko is as a brand or how good their watches are purely as products in their own right. Uh, I think one of the reasons that we imposed the time limit was because when we started discussing this, I went off on a rant about how Grand Seiko was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And some of those things are true. It's it's There, there are legitimate reasons for why Grand Seiko can and should in fact be considered a premier luxury watch brand in, in, in today's market. And I think if you're starting from the perspective that even that is not true, um, you know, I, I don't know what to say to you, but if you start from the perspective that this is just one other luxury watch brand that does a very good job of making the watches and selling them for the prices that they do, yes, you can, you know, kind of have um, niggles with uh, their product strategy and say they're doing too many dials or too many of this or too many of you know limited editions and so on and so forth. But I think if you compare their value retention to other players or comparable players in the market, it's not that wildly off. Rolex, on the other hand, I yeah, you know, it's it seems to have always been in the category of one and the most recent 
kind of trend in the market over the last two to three years where a bunch of stuff has shot up has just been way kinder to Rolex than I think it has been to other brands. And yeah, it's, it's a shame because I think we recognize that Grand Seiko watches are amazing, but the market doesn't feel the same way. We can and we probably should uh, for our own sanity and enjoyment of this hobby decouple those two questions. So that's, right. that's my bit. Right, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, we did some analysis on this uh, last year and we found that actually Grand Seiko has um, one of the strongest value retentions uh, relative to retail um, among just brands as a whole, uh, certainly like at their price point. So, right. I think, I think if you want to talk about brands that compete with Rolex, you absolutely have to have Grand Seiko in that discussion. Right. So obviously Grand Seiko does not have the value retention of Rolex, but it's comparable to, you know, Omega or Tudor or other brands um, sort of at, you know, at the price point that Grand Seiko, at least like around, uh, around the retail price that Grand Seiko go for. So uh, I, I can't think of a good uh, segue from this into our main topic. So we're just going <laughs> to take a, take a hard turn into the main topic which, uh, as I said at the start, is going to be just doing another market update. So I think we can start with the quite sort of self-evident observation at this point, which is that the market is still down. Uh, it certainly was trending downwards when we did the first uh, of these updates in our podcast uh, about a quarter ago, and it's, it's still down. And I think the first question, uh, Charles, that um, I'd like you to address here is, would you say that we have found the bottom? I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't look like there's any flattening, you know, of the curve. Um, and not only are we still down, actually now prices are lower than they were uh, six months ago, at least when it comes to the Rolex index that we publish as well as the overall market index. So we've sort of lost you know, all the insane gains that we saw at the beginning of this year, those and could are... You just, could you just remind us uh, what watches kind of, what watches those indexes are comprised of? Right. So the overall market index is a hand-picked set of 30 watches that we believe are relatively, you know, representative of what collectors are interested in and watches that are frequently traded. Um, for all of the indexes, for all the brands that we publish, it's much more algorithmic. It's just simply based on the sales volume. So for each brand index, we take the top 30 most traded watches in that brand over the past year. And that consists of, that is what the index consists of. So yeah, like I said, all the craziness at the beginning of this year that we saw with you know certain Rolex models, Patek, AP, those gains have for the most part been eliminated and we're sort of back to where we were at the beginning of this year which i think is not necessarily a bad thing i think that the you know overnight or seemingly overnight price increases that we saw on the secondary market were definitely unsustainable but it does seem like the market is continuing to be on its way down the rolex market was down four percent over the last month according to our tracking data and about down about 13% for, over the last three months and about 15% from the peak. So it's not 
you know, a huge crash by any means, but, and, and, and sort of the, these watch markets, you know, they are sort of slower moving. Well, it's, it's arguable whether a 15% drop in prices is, is a crash or not. But over three months, not necessarily, I would say. Um, and also the thing is, you know, the watch market is, I think, slower to react um, to market conditions. It's going to take more time because there's this issue of liquidity. There's this issue of uh, sales volume. So it's just that, you know, watches take longer to exchange hands and to be bought and sold. So you're not going to see sort of that instant market reaction, um, mm -hmm. especially on a, in a downturn. Right. And so uh, the only, I think what I would add to that is that even though these prices are following, are, are, I'm sorry, are, are falling, like you said, the, the Rolex index is down, you know, six months, it's still comfortably above retail overall. And so right. certainly, certainly for Rolex. And so it's, it, it is in some sense, um, a bit of misdirection to say that the market has fallen because for people who really want to be able to buy these watches at retail, saying that a Daytona used to be worth 50 and is now worth 30 or whatever, when retail is actually 15, right? It does. It's like, okay, well, previously was un unobtainable. Now it's unobtainable. Right. <laughs> Sorry. That's just me like um, complaining a little bit because I don't like the idea of stuff trading above retail to begin with. Yeah, that's very that's very reasonable. I mean, yeah, like definitely in the grand scheme of things, you know, the prices are still up significantly over the past year. And I, as as you said, I don't think I don't think we've seen any notable examples of watches from you know major brands that used to trade above retail that have now uh, dropped below retail. But yeah, certainly I think there's more room to come down, and you know even if some models were to drop below retail, which, um, you know, would not be surprising to me. I mean, we, we talked about this briefly, I think in the last episode, um, but it would not be surprising to me. I think that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily solve the supply and demand problem overnight, right? In 2019, I, I told the story before, in 2019, I bought a Rolex Yachtmaster uh, at retail. And mm -hmm. at that time, the market price was about $3,000, $2,000 below the retail price. And yet I still had to wait about four months for that watch. So it's not like the wow. moment prices drop below retail, inventory will instantly be available. Um, but it does create this, I think, big shift in, in mentality. And it will probably drive away a lot of the people that got into watches because they heard about Rolex, Patek, AP trading above retail and wanted to make a quick buck. And I think that is a good thing for all enthusiasts. The other associated observation is that all of the reasons that caused the market to start tanking back when we did the previous update are still in place. So the uncertainty globally caused by COVID related shutdowns still persists. The war in Ukraine shows no signs of slowing down or ending. Economic uncertainty has only or the the evidence around uh, a recession is only increasing in the United States and certainly globally economic uncertainty is is also elevated. And so all of those reasons are, are not really that different from what we saw three months ago. And so from that perspective as well, 
all the reasons that we talked about that helped explain why the market was down are still are still present. And so you would expect that sort of effect to, to continue. Uh, but I think it, it remains difficult really to specify the extent to which each of those individual factors perhaps might might contribute um, to the market continuing to fall. But yeah, it's 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 certainly interesting to know that you know the market is is falling, but we we don't know how much farther it has to fall. Could you talk, Charles, a little bit about? Uh, I, I think at this point it it might be useful to talk about just the fact that you know this is the first time certainly since we've been in watches that we're starting to see prices go down as enthusiasts. And I think a lot of people, perhaps in the hobby, certainly as we interact with them online and, you know, through our collector groups or people who haven't been in the hobby for a very long time. So this is also possibly the first correction that, that they're ever seeing. There's this interesting, you know, sort of reaction or blowback to thinking about watches as investments, which I think is, is interesting to talk about in the middle of a downturn, because you know, some of the feedback that we get is that we are financializing watches and therefore taking, you know, the, the fun or the interest or the enjoyment out of the hobby. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think this feedback is more specifically addressed relating to our market indexes because, you know, we have received a bit of coverage about the market indexes, um, mainstream coverage from both watch media and like traditional financial media. Um, and we published the Morgan Stanley report, as you said. Um, and I definitely understand like from an enthusiast standpoint, this point that if you're tracking indexes for watches, if you're tracking watches in some aggregate form, then that's like a very cold calculating thing um, it's taking, like you said, the enjoyment or the passion out of the hobby and just turning it into a game of numbers. And I think that my response to that is sort of goes back to, I think this is something that, you know, we haven't really talked about on the podcast, but, you know, the question of why are we doing what we're doing? Why, why are we running watch charts? Why are we interested in tracking prices for watches, both individually and the ag and in the aggregate? And I think for me, it's just that there's sort of this divide between the emotional aspects of the hobby, the enjoyment, the passion, um, from the rational aspects of the hobby, which is mostly how practical it is from a financial standpoint to be able to collect, right? I think that these things are just independent. You can be insanely into watches and have no money to spend on them or you cannot care about watches at all but spend a, a ton of money on them because you think they're a good investment right and so we're not really making any claim about the emotional aspect you know if you collect for enjoyment like we do that's great you know i fully support that i fully resonate with that um if you don't care about enjoyment as well purely want to collect for investment well, you know, maybe we can help you too, right? We're here to provide data. We're here to provide, try to provide facts, try to provide the, the most accurate representation of the market as we can. What you do with that information 
how you choose to interpret that, how you choose to use that is completely up to you. We're not saying that we're only making this for people who are trying to invest in watches or, and we're also not saying that as a enthusiast, as someone who's passionate about watches, you should not care about the market as well at all. Personally, I think in most cases of most collectors, most enthusiasts, it's just not financially viable to be able to do so. And so I don't know if you want to go on from here, Hamza. Like I can, I can elaborate more I on would, this point. I, I would rather illustrate it using an example of a friend of mine who is currently in the process of determining what he wants to do with his collection. So he's got a bunch of watches and he's thinking about whether or not to sell his Batman and buy a longa, you know, trade up for a longa 1815 up down because he doesn't have a dress watch. He has other tool watches. He has another travel watch. So there's all of these like, you know, all of these boxes that we try to check in our collections. He's, he's thinking about making that trade because it lets him continue to check those boxes. But given the value trade-off, he doesn't have to spend any additional money doing the trade. And he's at the point where he says he doesn't want to spend any more money in the hobby. And he's spent the money that he has to buy the watches that he has right now. He will you know, continue to throw some money into it as he trades watches over time to account for inflation. But if let's say he has spent $50,000 on his collection today and has decided he does not want to spend more money on watches than that, then that's the amount of money that he has to play with. And so if he wants to buy a new watch, he has to sell one of the ones that he has and then buy something new. If he's buying things that, like we were talking about before we started recording, he's taking a 40% hit on every time he tries to sell that watch, he's going to run out of money and therefore funds to buy the watches that he wants to buy and enjoy very quickly. And therefore limit the amount of enjoyment that's possible. Now, to some degree, that's a comment on the fact that these ridiculous things cost as much money as they do that, you know, we even have to think about them that way. But the other part of it is that, yeah, everybody does have limited resources for the most part, and we have to figure out how to allocate them in a way that we think feels most efficient. And to do that, you need to be able to ascertain what the value of a watch might be if you decide you want to try and sell it as a pre-owned watch. And I've said this before a bunch of times, like buying and selling in the hobby will always exist. It's an inextricable part of being a member uh, of the watch collecting community because people will buy and sell even when they don't want to. My response to this whole like, oh, will I get good value on the pre-owned market or not question when I got into the hobby a few years ago was just to decide, you know what, all of these watches that I want to try I want a Speedmaster, I want a Cartier Tank, I want a Rolex Datejust, I want an Explorer, I want an Explorer 2, I want a Submariner, I want a Daytona, I want an Aquaterra, I want, um, you know, two different types of constellations, I want three or four Breitlings, 10 of this, 20 of that, right? Like all of these things that I want to try because everything looked so fresh and exciting and new. The fact of the matter was I couldn't afford to buy everything. And so I had to pick and choose what I was going to buy. And if I wanted to try it, let's say 20 watches, then I would have had to go through this exercise of losing a little bit of money each time and not really knowing whether I was losing more money than I, than, you know, than, than perhaps I should have. Like, had I been smarter about buying and selling, would I have lost 20% of the cash that I put in instead of 40%, right? 
And if I, you know, if I chose to go that route, then Watcharts would be a service that would presumably help me minimize my losses as I went through that discovery process. But because I didn't have a service like this available, what I ended up doing was deciding not to buy watches unless I was 100% sure that I wanted to keep them for the rest of my life. And even then, I have, you know, even like kind of, in, you know, enforcing that sort of strict test on myself, I've bought, I've bought watches that cost less than a thousand bucks and I've cost, I've bought watches that cost more than 10,000 bucks that I have been absolutely certain I would never give up. And then eventually found a few years down the line. Yeah, actually, you know what? Like my reasoning was not fully thought through at that time. I've learned and I've had to pay the price to learn, uh, you know, the experience of owning and wearing these watches. But now I think I have a better sense of what I want. And that means I should no longer hold on to this unless I'm okay with just the amount of money that I spend on it being stuck in this asset that's sitting in a drawer that I'm never going to wear again. Right. So yes, even when I decide I don't want to, you know, hold on to watches for a very long time, I'm still going to make mistakes and I'm still going to have to end up selling stuff. And when I do, I'm going to want to know how much the stuff is worth. So those are, I think, two examples that I can give both from my friend and from myself of where even when we don't think that value should really play a role in this discussion, it inevitably does. Right. I think what you're saying is that, you know, there's always a sacrifice that needs to be made. And I think that different people approach. I don't know that I would call it a sacrifice. I, I would call it a sacrifice. Um, and, and I think this different people approach that in different ways. Right. Um, I've heard a lot of collectors say that they don't even want to think about the amount of money that they've put into watches. They don't want to track the value of their collection because they don't want to mm -hmm. think about the value of the collection, think about the amount of money that, you know, they put in and how much residual value is left and so on, right? So in that mm -hmm. sense, you know, that type of collector, I think is, has the advantage of being able to enjoy a large number of watches. And, you know, granted, they also have to have the financial means to do so, yeah. but they are potentially, you know, losing a lot of money. A lot of times if you buy watches at retail or if you buy watches, you know, right when they come out, when they hit the secondary market or whatever, you know, you stand to lose 20, 30, 40% over the next few years as that watch depreciates, right? Mm -hmm. The other type of sacrifice is what you mentioned, which is, okay, then I'm just going to be hyper selective. I'm not going to care so much about, you know, necessarily if I'm maximizing, if I'm getting the best deal on the watches that I'm buying, but I'm going to be incredibly selective about which watches I choose to buy. So thus you're sacrificing the amount of watches you're able to enjoy with the capital that you have. And My life I think is so that, hard, Charles. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that, you know, the way that I approached it when I started watch charts was just, I, I didn't want to sacrifice either of those things. I didn't want to sacrifice money and I didn't want to sacrifice the number of watches that I enjoy. And so the only logical step that's left is to say, okay, then I just need to try to maximize, really try to maximize, you know, every single dollar that I put into watches and just make sure that I'm buying watches that are going to hold their value at the most competitive prices I can find. And that just ends up taking a lot of time. And you also have to navigate private sales and, you know, different types of sales platforms that do have some more risk and more responsibility uh, for the right. individual collector, right? And that's not for everyone and that's perfectly okay. Um, but that was the path, I think, just based on my personality um, that I chose because like you said, you know, there were so many watches. I wanted to try, you know, 10, 20 different 
watches from a, a variety of brands. And I didn't even live in a place where, you know, those watches were readily available to see in shops and stuff like that. Um, and even if they were, like you said, you know, you could own a watch. I'm sure we've all gone through the experience of owning a watch for maybe a few weeks or a few months or even a few years and then realizing, hmm, maybe it's not for me. You know, I've learned something about why this watch isn't for me when I thought it was, but I've also had to pay a price like financially. Right. So I think the, the sum of it is that, you know, with watches costing as much as they do, there's always a place for this attempt, this effort to try to track their value. Whether you're a collector, whether you're like a pre-owned dealer, whether you're a brand that's, you know, looking at sort of the equity of your own, you know, pieces that you have that in, in your catalog, you know, there's always a place to try and ascertain the reasonable market price for a watch. And it doesn't matter whether that watch is double retail or, you know, 50%, 60% below retail. It's been done in every other industry. We have very, very reasonable, you know, accurate price tracking for cars, for sneakers, for wine. You know, it's only natural that I think a service like this must exist when the watches cost as much as they do. And that doesn't mean that our methodology is perfect. Certainly there are issues with it and we are trying to improve those issues. And we'll actually talk briefly later on in this show about what we're doing to try to improve. But to say that it's not worth the attempt to try to track prices for watches, I think is just, I mean, maybe it is for you individually as a collector. That's perfectly fine. That's your choice. But I think to say that the effort is theoretically useless, I think is just straight up wrong. The way that I would connect this and kind of bring it back to the market is that I, I think I, I am one of those people who, to some degree, really doesn't care whether the market is going up or down, not only because my my the things that I want to buy are so sort of removed from the general conversation around the market that it doesn't really impact my my thought process, but also because I have not thought about watches as a financial asset really beyond just keeping track of, you know, how much money I'm throwing into the hobby. I, I was going to ask you, does seeing the fact that this chart is trending downwards and has been for several months evoke any kind of emotional response for you? No, not at all. Um, I think that I'm very much in the same boat as you. My tastes at this point, I feel like at this point in my collecting um, journey, I've experienced a lot of sort of the mainstream stuff that's out there. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of figured out that I want to try to go find stuff that's, you know, more unique, more interesting to me. Um, and so my tastes are a bit off the beaten path, you know, I think similar to you. Yeah, when I, I was going to say, when I think about this a little bit, I'm tempted to work up the the will to experience schadenfreude but i i can't even be bothered to to you know work up work up that sort of feeling it's, it's it, that that's that's how little i find myself really emotionally invested in this yeah we, we track the indexes because it's the, it's a natural extension of what it means to track prices for individual watches if you track prices for individual watches then naturally people are going to want to see okay well how are these brands doing as a whole how are maybe how is the overall market doing as a whole how are different watches at different price points doing as a whole those are all things that we publish on our website but like i have no stake personally 
Like I have no emotional or you know monetary or any stake in how the watch market does as a whole. Individually, personally, I just want to find good deals on cool watches that I like. That's the reason I made this site. I want to find all this obscure stuff out there that is severely underrated, that is trading at you know insanely low prices that people are overlooking. And then I want to be patient and try to find those watches at good prices and enjoy them. That's my goal. That's why I made the site. Yeah. This, so, all this stuff is just sort of a you know natural extension of you know uh, tracking prices. So since you were talking about indexes, should we walk through what the movement on some of those indexes looks like in um, in in this section and maybe start with? So we have three different types of indexes. We have just your overall market index, then we have brand indexes, and then we also have indexes for watches that are categorized based on the market average at which they trade. So uh, Charles, I don't know which one of these you want to go through first, uh, but maybe uh, let's walk through uh, some of these and see what interesting observations there are against the backdrop of this uh, overall market downward trend continuing. Right. So yeah, the overall index uh, we published just here on the Watch Values homepage. And um, we see that it's down about 16.5% over the last three months. Um, that is a little bit more, or sorry, that's actually a little bit less than the overall drop since peak. Um, that might be more like, you know, 18 or 19%. But this index is also relatively skewed towards, um, you know, I would say what people just, you know, classify as like investment grade watches, right? You know, watches that are, among the most highly sought after, you know, so special edition like the Starbucks or the Hulk or, um, you know, Aquanaut, Nautilus, you know, they tend to be towards this direction. And so those watches are also the type of watches that have dropped the most um, in over the last like three to six months. So this index is actually down more than I think most of the uh, individual brand indexes. If we look here, we can see this is the percent change of all the indexes for these major brands that we track. Um, this, is, this, is, this is not the complete list of brands that we track, but these are sort of the ones that you know most people are interested in. And so we see over the last six months, Paddock and APO are actually still up a little bit. Vacheron's actually up a lot. Um, the thing with the indexes is that the weight of every watch is actually the same. So regardless of the amount of volume or the price point of that watch, all the watches are weighted, sorry, not the same, they're rated proportional to their uh, market price. And so just because a watch like the, you know, 4,500V, the, the classic, you know, three-hander um, overseas is, has a lot more trade volume, is, is not necessarily, is not going to affect uh, the weighting of that watch. So I think for a brand like Vacheron, what we're seeing is that the watches like the 4,500V are actually down. I think the blue dial we say is, is down like about 20% over the last few months. Um, but the thing is just, Overall, among those 30 watches in that index, a lot of the other watches, you know, from like the Historiques or 56 collections or, you know, whatever else, um, the, the, I think we're actually seeing quite a lot of increase in the prices of the previous generation, the second generation overseas models. Um, and so that is sort of causing the index overall to rise, despite the fact that the most traded overseas or the most traded Vacheron models are down. So over the last six months, Rolex is down 3%, Paddock, AP, Vacheron are actually still up. And then most of the other sort of more consumer level brands, the more affordable brands are down, you know, they're basically flat 
to down maybe you know five to ten percent um, over the last three months. If we look at this, then we see almost across the board everything is down. That Shran is basically flat. We say again boosted by the more obscure models that are still you know receiving some trade activity, but. Rolex is down 13%, Paddock is down 16%, AP is down 12%, um, and then everything else is sort of down a little bit across the board, also sort of between 5 and 10%, or maybe 3 and 7%. So this, again, is just a continuation, I think, to for, for the most part of the trends that we pointed out three months ago, right? There's, right. there's no major sort of shifts uh, in that amount of time. It's just... I think once the once the downward trend started, it's it's followed what seems to be a fairly linear path down. Um, right. At least cer certainly certainly in the in the aggregate. So, can we maybe talk about some watches that might be bucking the trend instead? Uh, watches that are rising instead of instead of falling. Right. Um, so, yeah, we had a few examples prepared for this, but I think also just um, like I mentioned, uh, we are seeing some increase, I think, in the uh, previous generation overseas models. So, um, for example, I think this is this is actually a quartz overseas. That's interesting. So you say this watch is up um, and then there's various other like the the four series, like the forty nine one fifty or the forty. There's, I forget what the reference number is of the second generation three-hander overseas. Um, but yeah, actually we're saying that all those watches are continuing to increase in price over the last three months. Um, so it's interesting that I think that what's happening is people are still finding value in Vacheron, despite, you know, maybe the disproportionate hype in the 4500V or other, you know, current production Vacheron models, those are now going down. But as a whole, people are still finding increased appreciation in the overseas collection, in the 56 collection, uh, in the histories collection or whatever else. Um, so Vacheron- I'm very intrigued. I'm also very intrigued by the kind of collector who would be buying a previous generation overseas. That has to be somebody who's not buying because they want a flashy watch. That right. almost certainly has to be somebody who's buying it because they recognize the value of- right a stainless steel sports watch from Vacheron that is edging into neo-vintage territory, if not vintage territory. Right. Well, I don't think it's quite at vintage territory yet. I don't recall exactly. Vintage is, a, vintage is maybe a bit of an overstatement, but. Right. I don't exa exactly remember when the third generation came out. I believe it was in the mid 2010s when, when that third generation was released. But yeah, I fully agree. I mean, I think there's definitely some subset of collectors that have, you know, been very turned away by the insane amount of hype over the last year or two that's we've seen for you know current production you know special edition or whatever just desirable daytonas gmt's nautilus aquanaut whatever uh, uh royal oak and they're looking for value elsewhere and maybe you know the sort of the attention that was given to the 4500V last year, at the starting from last year, sort of boosted just awareness of the offerings of Vacheron as a whole. And I definitely don't think it's the same set of collectors that are now gravitating towards these previous generation models. I think one thing that's been very defining about a lot of this hype that we've seen over the last couple of years is that it's all for like current production pieces, which you theoretically could buy at retail, 
but now are no longer available at retail or you know maybe we're just discontinued or now it's just you it's too hard to get the waiting list is too long to me that shows that it's a lot of new collectors entering the space a lot of collectors that don't really necessarily have the background of knowledge to get into neo vintage or vintage pieces and are just trying to buy the latest in production stuff that they see you know in the on the rolex website or in the catalogs or uh, you know at the, on on the store displays or whatever so yeah the overseas um previous generations is is one area that's still going up i think longa as a brand is still going up um this is something that we discussed in the role in the uh morgan Stanley report overall but I, we say that longa is up about 20 percent over the year and um, the growth is maybe slowing down a little bit but it's actually still prices of a longer watch is actually still increasing which again is showing to me that this you know type of more value oriented collector this type of collector that appreciates quality and craftsmanship of watchmaking is now gravitating maybe to other brands other offerings that are still you know very high end but quite different than you know your paddock or your your, your paddock uh, nautilus or your ap royal oak I have a friend who uh, I almost convinced to buy a Longa Saxonia Thin. Uh, and uh, he was convinced mostly because it was fine watchmaking, but not from the Swiss, from the German. Mm -hmm. He found a great deal of uh, humor in that, sticking right. it to the Swiss and whatever. But <laughs> he ended up not buying eventually because, you know, the, the resale on that on that watch, I think, is is at a bit of a discount over... Uh, what it retails for. Uh, certainly since they've increased retail prices, I think it used to be around 15,000. And now I think the retail prices for just the base model are, are around 17,000. Uh, and, you know, he, he was averse to, to losing money. So, but, you know, they, they make 5,000 watches a year. Their finishing and craftsmanship is good enough that it is the one high horology watch that Philippe Dufour himself wears and that he put his money uh, down for, right? They're amazing watches, and it doesn't make sense that they would not be trading at a premium when arguably less well-finished products from, uh, you know, other high horology brands are. So right. I think I, I, I personally am hopeful and bullish on Longa that their prices will, on the pre-owned market, continue to rise because I think just as a brand uh, and as a, you know, as, as a product company, they they definitely would would deserve that level of uh, acclaim and desirability from from the market. Right. Yeah, Longa is held back a little bit, I think, just because you know the style of watches that they make this very you know dressy style, or you know even some watches that aren't necessarily dress watches. You know, like they're they're very big, but they still look dressy. You know, that has not really been the most well-received style, at least in the West, um, over the last, you know, maybe decade or so. And that's also, I think, a big just reason why Rolex has done so well is because people have just gravitated increasingly towards sports watches and sports watches, basically all that Rolex has, you know, ever made throughout its history, you know, a practical, tough tool watch. But yeah, you know, when you look at the big four, right, there's sort of, you know, four major brands that people see as, you know, the pinnacle of mainstream watchmaking, right, Pettit, Vacheron, uh, AP, and then Longa, you know, Paddock and AP have received a lot of attention over the last few years, um, but Vacheron and Longa have sort of been overlooked. Um, so I think now with this downturn, we've, we're, what we're seeing is that 
there's increasing appreciation for Mastron and there's increasing appreciation for Longa. We did some analysis of this in the Morgan Stanley report and we found that um, in 2021, the average Longa watch traded for 24% below retail. And in 2022, the average Longa watch trades for 16% below retail. So certainly despite retail prices increasing, the gap is narrowing. So I think collectors are finding value. And while most Longo watches do not trade over retail, there are also a few examples like the Odysseus that do. Right. And that's more that has more to do with the stainless steel sports integrated bracelet watch craze right. than it does with the fact that it's a Longo. Right. Yeah. So what basically what we're seeing, the what the evidence shows is that if a highly respected high horology manufacturer makes a watch in the style that people desire, then that watch will trade above retail. That watch will be, you know, desirable. Right. Uh, so we can spend the last part of this episode um, talking a little bit about some of the feedback that we've gotten in recent months um, and weeks about our pricing and, you know, maybe some limitations with it and uh, some things that we're trying to do to improve. And the reason that we're um, having this conversation openly is because, you know, we believe that that's what's essential in terms of creating a better product, a more accurate, you know, pricing model, better data for, you know, the public to be able to access, right? Um, and so we are, look forward to having those conversations and, you know, addressing both acknowledging and improving on um, the, you know, uh, methodology that we have, you know, when there is valid criticism. Um, so I think there's been some discussion, um, especially when these prices, you know, have been dropping, um, that have basically, there's been some criticism that's basically been saying that our representation of the market is not accurate because the actual market is down more than it is, more, more than we say it is. And I think that that's definitely true in some cases, um, and it can be attributed to a few factors. Um, one of them is that, you know, in a lot of instances, we don't necessarily have final selling prices of watches. Uh, we take our data from three public sources, uh, which are well, three, three types of public sources, which are private sales platforms, uh, marketplaces, and uh, auction data. And so when we don't have the final sale price of a listing for our analysis, what we do is we use the last known asking price. The other thing is that the watch market is relatively low volume, especially when you're looking at, you know, very high end brands like uh, Paddock and AP, which, you know, maybe only make a few tens of thousands of watches every year. And we only see a small fraction of that come up on the secondary market. And so we take a 30-day moving average of prices in order to calculate our market price for any given day. So any given day's market price is based on the last 30 days of data for that watch. Um, and so as a result, if the market is highly volatile, if the market is moving either you know, significantly up or significantly down, then there's this issue of lag time, right? Our representation of the market today is gonna be you know, somewhat based on what we've seen over the preceding days. Um, so, and, and then the other thing is, um, we've recently changed our algorithm to also take into account 
asking prices under some conditions when we feel like sold prices are, are not enough. So historically, our algorithm was only based on actual transactions. So when we saw that there was a confirmed sale, we would take the last known price or the sale price um, of that sale to use for our uh, analysis. But what we found is that in the market downturn, you know, traditionally you would expect in a typical market, the sale price on average to be lower than the asking price, right? And that was the case historically when prices were going up. But with the downturn and with the limited volume that we were seeing, um, which is further limited in some cases because of the prices dropping and there being a lack of buyer confidence, uh, we saw that a lot. In, in some cases that actually the prices of the recorded sales were still higher than the asking prices. And so what we decided is conditionally, if we feel like we cannot determine a accurate enough price based on only transaction data, then we would also conditionally take into account asking prices. So that is happening in some cases now across our analysis. Um, so these are some of the things that you know we've thought about, we've discussed, we've received you know, feedback on and um, what we're doing to address the feedback. Yeah, I just wanna underscore that like the, the whole point of talking about this is the only way that we can do better is, well, one of the ways, or one of the most important ways certainly in which we can do better is by being told, um, you know, what we're not doing well. And so we are open and transparent as much as we can be about, you know, what, what the methodology looks like and, and you know, the, the, the numbers that we're publishing and, uh, you know, how we do it algorithmically. Um, but obviously it, it has to pass, you know, the smell test. Uh, if, if you smell it and uh, it smells wrong, then uh, it's clearly not doing its job as well as it perhaps should be. And so, you know, getting your feedback and then acting on it is one of the ways that, that we make the product better, uh, certainly from the way we assess it. And then also hopefully from, from the way that uh, you process uh, and judge the information that, that you see on the website. Right. The other thing, I, so the other thing I think I'll say is that you know we don't ever really expect. I don't really ever expect watch charts to be sort of the end all, be all. You know, final say on the market price. It's just one number that we publish that you should just trust no matter what. Right. We do best effort pricing on forty thousand watches across a hundred brands. Right. We're going to get some stuff wrong. That's just the truth of it. Like we will always get some stuff wrong. If a watch has you know ten sales a year it's really, really hard to pinpoint a, a good market price for that watch, right? But what we want to be is your starting point for your research for a particular watch, right? Um, you can take, you know, our analysis for what it is. And you can also look at stuff like the price confidence that we cover, which is, uh, that we publish, which is a, a estimation, a evaluation of our own data quality that we perform ourselves. And then, you know, whatever possible, we will try and show you, you know, listings, actual comps, right, of sales that have happened historically that you can go off of when it comes to pricing your watch for how much you're selling or, you know, how much you should be paying if you're interested in buying the watch, right? We want to be your starting point for your research. We are never going to say just trust the market price. That's it, right? There will always be some unique conditions, especially in this type of market that we can't account for. Stuff like condition, especially if it's vintage, and especially if there's a very limited number of sales, right? But I don't think that this effort is 
futile. Honestly, it's, it's not worth doing. It's just that we need to get increasingly better at it. And we also are just going to openly say, you know, we will probably, you know, never be perfect. It's always going to take some sort of human analysis, like, like Hamza said, some sort of smell test, some sort of, you know, test of, you know, reason, how, how reasonable the numbers are. You should never just trust it blindly. You should always do your own research. In that sense, uh, I guess the nature of our endeavor is not that different from watches themselves. It's all about the pursuit of perfection. And I think people could argue that there are very few watches that, that have received, that have achieved some level of perfection. Um, and then everybody else is just sort of striving towards that goal. Uh, and so we are on a similar journey. Well, as always, you can find us on the web at watcharts.com, on Instagram, where our username is Watch Charts, as well as on YouTube, where we are also Watch Charts. Thanks again, Charles. Thanks everyone yeah. for listening. Thanks, Hamza. And yep, and we'll see you next time.